From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. So we have arrived at a familiar journalistic peg, the hundredth day of a new White House. It's not especially meaningful, unless we make it so, and we, the media, do. Thus, presidents do too. Donald Trump will tweet that it's a ridiculous marker and then do all he can to ensure that we know his hundred days were huge. I don't think that there is a presidential period of time in the first 100 days where anyone's done nearly what we've been able to do. Seeing what we've accomplished in a very short period of time, the White House is running so smoothly. So smoothly. Achievement, I think I'd give myself an A, because I think I've done great things. But that is, aside from a travel ban shot down twice by judges across the nation, a failed attempt to change our health care system, and dismal approval ratings. But as reporters, we get fixed on facts and underrate the power of the story the president tells to cement his base, which polls suggest still holds firm. When we talk about actual achievement, do we merely preach to the converted? That may be, but it's our job to soldier on. As does the president, who brings years of experience to the war over perception. Lose, call it a win, move on quickly. This is something he has been doing his entire adult professional life. Michael Cruz, a senior staff writer for Politico, wrote this week about how Trump has long managed to succeed without actually succeeding. In the mid-'80s, he failed as the owner of United States Football League's New Jersey Generals and, in fact, helped kill the United States Football League as a owner of casinos. His companies have filed for bankruptcy five times over the course of 20 years. The House always wins in gambling except when the House is owned by Donald Trump. Trump might win. He sucked a lot of money out of there, but his shareholders didn't. His casinos never, ever turned a profit, which is pretty hard to do as a casino owner. His airline? He bought the uh, Eastern Airline Shuttle, renamed it, of course, the Trump Shuttle. It bled money for a couple of years, and then it was no longer his airline, partly because he did everything but have to declare personal bankruptcy and was in all kinds of financial turmoil. Now, let's talk about the other things he's put his name on. He has throughout especially after the success of The Apprentice, tried to put his name on things and sell them. Trump Ice, The Water, Trump Vodka, Trump Steaks, Trump Magazine, Trump World Magazine, Trump University, of course, which is probably the most well-known because it's the most scammy of all of these things. All of these entrepreneurial initiatives on which he slapped his name came and went, and in some cases, very, very quickly. In all of these cases... No matter how unsuccessful, for Trump, they were wins. Yes. Starting with the USFL, you know, the other owners and officials of teams all said, we lost, we're dead. Donald Trump said, this is a moral victory. We expect an ongoing victory. The judge came back and said, no, it was a loss, and I'm going to uphold the ruling, and I'm going to pin specific blame on you, the owner of the New Jersey Generals. But no matter what has happened, no matter what the failures have been, he has always said very explicitly, after going bankrupt, this is not a failure, this is a success. 
A great example of this is Trump's Taj Mahal Casino in Atlantic City, which he billed as the eighth wonder of the world. The Trump Taj Mahal is really the big ticket item that broke his back there in the early 90s. It was opulent and ostentatious. He took on an enormous amount of debt. He financed it with primarily junk bonds. It opened too early on an April weekend in 1990 to start creating cash flow to service this suffocating debt. And it was a catastrophe. The machines didn't work. Uh, the staff wasn't ready. Customers got so, so angry. <laughs> Trump went on CNN with Larry King and made the case with a straight face that was not a failure at all. It only looked that way because it was so successful. Every table was taken. Every seat was taken. Nobody's ever seen it. On a Monday morning in the rain, you couldn't get into the casino. Every slot, every... So what, it blew out the slots, literally? They blew apart. We had machines that... Like that too much they were, they were virtually on fire. It was barely more than a year before the Taj Mahal filed Chapter 11. You quote a line from his 2007 book, Think Big, that you are what you think you are. Oftentimes, perception is more important than fact. You've talked to a lot of people who've worked with Trump, biographers, PR folks, political operatives. I wonder whether they think this is a strategy or just the way that Trump is. I think it's both. I think it's a strategy, but it's been a strategy for so long that it's become reflexive. I don't think he thinks about it in a conscious way at this point. And I'm saying this because of my conversations with the Trump experts, if you will, that I have talked to for, at this point, years trying to understand how he operates and what's important to him. And this surely is important to him. Any American who's watched him on television knows this. He isn't nonchalant about his success. He's intense whether or not it has to do with the Electoral College win or his business successes in the past, he is selling the idea of the success so hard, you have to wonder whether or not he really does believe it. In another forum, in a different book, he has said, if people don't associate my name with the word success, I've got a real problem. So number one on the list of objectives for Donald Trump every morning he wakes up is to continue his lifelong effort to convince the people he has to convince that he is a success. It is his most singular skill. It's not the deal-making prowess. It's not the accumulation of real estate. It is the brazen willingness to call himself a success, to define himself that way so intently that it becomes a truth or an accepted truth to a certain amount of people. And hopefully, <laughs> for him, enough people. <laughs> the biggest data point here on the question of whether this has worked for Donald Trump is he got himself elected president. Hannah Arant once said, you can't outrun reality forever. Ultimately, it's going to catch up with you. This isn't a business that you can file bankruptcy for and walk away from or sell to someone else. Do you really think that he can get out of this with a belief of his success intact? We'll see. I think it's worth pointing out that if he doesn't get reelected in November 2020, it will be the first time this hasn't worked for him. I think you build a good case in your piece that it could work. 
The one thing that I think argues strongly against it is that, yes, thanks to the Electoral College, he is in office, but he didn't win a plurality. And even though his own particular constituency may be secure, there are some people who have never bought Trump and certainly aren't going to buy him now. You know, what he has working for him at this point that he never has in the past is that he's the president. There's a certain authority. And so when the president says to you, wherever you live, trying to keep up with your bills and watch your kids, when the president says, I have succeeded, I think some people will continue to believe him in spite of the objective evidence. Will enough people? It remains to be seen. But Donald Trump is going to continue to try because he has to. I think the larger question is if those people's lives don't get measurably better over the next few years, how could they possibly vote for him again? But it's not impossible that they would make that decision, especially if they're being helped along by the president himself describing his actions as successes, even if they're not. He can continue to frame everything he does as a success because anyone who says otherwise, namely the media, are lying, producing fake news. The more the press calls him out on these sorts of statements that don't match up the reality, the more he gains acceptance with a certain portion of the population. If pointing out Trump's failures simply supports his contention that the press are all engaged in a big conspiracy against him, how are the media supposed to cover him? The answer is sort of inherently dispiriting and unsatisfactory. I mean, we are right now in this high-stakes battle between what's true and what's not and what's real and what's not. And unreality has one hell of an advocate in the Oval Office. You quote a guy named Eric Desenhall, who's an expert in crisis and damage control. And he wrote to you in an email that the great lesson of Trump's career is that what goes around does not come around, not even a little. Eric Desenhall goes on to say that Trump's main mission is to vex the political and media elite, and that essentially this is a mandate to entertain. And if he's right, if what he was elected to do for a portion of the population, who knows what that number is or will be, but if that is what a portion of the population is expecting him to do, mission accomplished, right? Michael, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me on. Michael Cruz is a senior staff writer for Politico. His article is called How Trump Succeeds Without Succeeding. On this week of his 100th day, the president didn't want to wake up to a government shutdown, so he shelved the border wall temporarily, he says. He also released a one-page tax plan with big cuts, which the media covered with the usual homespun language about balancing checkbooks and such. One side wants to spend a lot and the other side wants to cut taxes, but nobody seems to want to balance the budget. Good intentions will not balance the nation's checkbook. Pundits and politicians worry 
worried about going into the red. Today, the Trump administration unveils a broad outline on how it wants to rework America's tax code. Without a plan to pay for it, that's going to explode the debt. This kind of cut of this size is going to have a real impact on government or we are going to have this impossible deficit problem. The mainstream media usually frame the federal budget as a household budget writ large. That overarching metaphor, says cognitive linguist George Lakoff, is precisely wrong. The first problem is that the household can't just print money, whereas the government can. Secondly, the government can sell bonds, the household can't, (laughs) and pass taxes. And then the question is, who is the government in debt to? And the answer is ourselves, the American people and people who buy the bonds. If you're in a family, you can't just say, oh, uh, let's sell bonds to each other. (laughs) That doesn't work. Another thing it does, I think, is it ignores what the role of government money as opposed to money in a family budget is supposed to do. This is a very big deal. Abraham Lincoln said that this is a government of, by, and for the people. For the people says that the government and the public have to care about each other. And that affects how you spend the money. Whenever the Republicans say we need a balanced budget, what that says is it's going to cost poor people. It means we cannot do anything to alleviate poverty, to alleviate poor schooling, to take people out of college loan debt. We can't do anything to improve communities or improve infrastructure in various places so that people will have more jobs and better jobs. What it says is we have to use money on what we're using it now. You can't invest it in the future. In order to do that, you have to borrow money, that is, go into debt, but you're borrowing it from Americans. You're borrowing it from yourselves. So how does understanding the government budget as a macro personal budget influence the way we talk about government spending, how that issue is framed? Well, it's framed as uh, we have to balance the budget at all times. If we go into debt, it's terrible. And look at the size of our debt. The debt is huge. Now, what economists know perfectly well is that debt really has to be measured versus the size of the economy. And the way to understand this is really simple. Suppose you're running a restaurant. And you'll have a certain small amount of debt that you borrowed for this restaurant and a certain small amount of profit, and you try to pay it off. Fine. Now, suppose there's a company with a 1,000 restaurants. What happens? Their debt looks huge, but they're also getting profits from a 1,000 restaurants. The real issue is how much is this relative to your profit? There are a couple of other words that we've heard a lot in the news this week pertaining to the Trump administration's announcement Wednesday outlying its proposal for tax cuts. It's framed both in liberal and conservative media as tax reform or overhaul. The president's broad brush plan for tax reform. They called it historic and the biggest ever. President Trump today taking the lead on tax reform, proposing a massive overhaul. But is it really that? Not at all. The word reform assumes that there's something bad that needs to be made better and the reform would 
make it better. What George Bush did when he first came into office, he talked about tax relief. And starting in 2001, we delivered the largest tax relief since Ronald Reagan was in the White House. Relief says there's something wrong going on here. People need relief from taxes, and if you want higher taxes on anybody, then you're a bad guy. So what kind of word would you substitute for, say, reform? We don't have a simple word for it. The way to say it is it makes billionaires richer and everybody else poorer. Would you just say a tax plan, something neutral? No. (laughs) It would be very difficult for the mainstream media to say President Trump's tax disaster is now on the docket for uh, consideration by the Congress. That would be a difficult thing to say. Why? Because it is telling the public how to judge it, not giving it necessarily the information it needs to come to its own conclusion. It's not just the facts and figures. You have to tell them what does it mean, who it helps and who it hurts. But when I turn on the TV, they may give the facts and figures, but they still say tax reform. Tax has to do with the word taxing. It's bad for you. It's a burden. If they called it investment in the society, that would be a very different thing. If you say, uh, let's stop investing in our economy. Let's stop investing in our people. People say, what do you mean? Because taxes, when they're done well, are investments. Investments in education, investments in health, investments in lifting people out of poverty, all sorts of things. This is hidden by the language, and it's hidden by the way that The language is reported in the press. Investment instead of taxes. What you're suggesting is a whole different lexicon. It's not just a lexicon. It's a lexicon that has a different meaning and that therefore has a different effect on society. Once again, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to be here. George Lakoff is a professor emeritus of cognitive science and linguistics at the University of California at Berkeley. This week I spoke to Art Cullen. He's a reporter and co-owner of Northwest Iowa's Storm Lake Times, a twice-weekly paper with a circulation of 3,330. It has a staff of 10, if you count the recipes editor, and it just won the Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing, taking on three sets of county commissioners and big agriculture in one fell swoop. Mainly these big interests just ignored us for three years. And until the lawsuit was filed, nobody was really paying attention to these issues. They don't really care what we think. They were just saying, this is some little weekly out in the sticks, forget about it. Well, then we won a Pulitzer Prize, and now they're feeling a little more heat, maybe. To hear my conversation with Art Cullen, go to onthemedia.org. And while you're there, sign up for our excellent newsletter. This is On The Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. In order to avert a government shutdown, on Tuesday, President Trump backed off his vow to secure a $1 billion down payment in the spending bill for the Mexican border wall. Naturally, for the president, this was not a defeat, but rather a strategic shift to Plan B. Increased border security funds now and the wall for real in September. The president took to Twitter this morning writing, don't let the fake media tell you that I have changed my position on the wall. It will get built and help stop drugs, human trafficking, etc. Throughout the campaign, Trump showered the mythic structure with accolades. Big, beautiful, powerful, impenetrable, 1,000 miles long, 35 feet tall, and altogether vital to our security. As Attorney General Jeff Sessions reasserted this month on his border tour, Here he is in Nogales, Arizona. We have uh, a good fence here. Uh, It has been very effective in helping to uh, curtail the illegal flow into the country. Uh, The next uh, structures will be even more effective and be in a lot of areas that we've said we were going to have barriers in before but have not yet been built. That's going to get done. That fence he referred to was part of the 2006 Secure Fence Act, signed into law by President Bush. And yes, 11 years later, much of that fence has not yet been built. The law required some 700 miles of at least, quote, two layers of reinforced fencing and was part of an early attempt to pass comprehensive immigration reform, which also never actually materialized. Barack Obama was a senator at the time. This bill... From my perspective, is an election year political solution to a real policy challenge that goes far beyond November. It's great for sound bites and ad campaigns, but as an answer to the problem of illegal immigration, it's unfinished at best. He voted for it anyway, as did Chuck Schumer and Hillary Clinton, and it sailed through the Senate with 80 votes. The 2006 fence was a less ambitious barrier than the one Trump campaigned on. But it sprang from a familiar debate, and its stunted construction offers a cautionary tale. Cindy Garkema covers immigration and the border for the LA Times. Cindy, welcome to On the Media. Hello. The fencing project took years, but it never actually got even the 700 miles of double fencing that was voted for. And I guess there are a few reasons for that. Can we go through them? Sometimes the American people don't have a good understanding of what the actual border looks like, especially along Texas and Arizona. You know, you just have this real funky geology. You have terrain shifts due to tectonic plates. Uh, You have mountains and rivers and wilderness areas, sandy ground, swampy areas. (laughs) It's not like a straight line border that you could build a fence on. And some of the land doesn't even belong to the government. Yeah, private citizens were served with letters of possible eminent domain, and it didn't happen. And now they're getting some of those letters, again, under the Trump administration. Actually, a good chunk of it along the Arizona border is owned by the Tohono O'odham Nation. They don't want any kind of fencing along their land. In their culture, they go freely from the Mexican side to the U.S. side. To them, it's all one nation. The fence that got built is a bit patchy. Most of it is what? 
in some areas, there is no fencing because it's so difficult to get through. Why would you have fencing in those areas? And even if you did put fencing, there are no roads to get to the fencing (laughs) to be able to stop anyone crossing. So it really depends on where it is that you would be building on. What was built was really kind of like the low-hanging fruit, right? So it was relatively easier than what the Trump administration is proposing now. But there are some places where it's quite robust. There's a three and a half mile stretch in San Diego uh, built at the cost of $58 million. Yes. That's pretty impressive. And in places like uh, Yuma, Arizona, there's triple fencing. Has it been effective? People will tell you that all it's done is actually moved migration east to Arizona or to the Pacific Ocean. I mean, you're seeing more people in flimsy fishing boats. And when the fencing went up in Arizona, I moved it farther east to Texas. I've spoken with former INS who will tell you, frankly, that the San Diego border, the fencing there, all it did was create a cottage industry of smuggling and made it more dangerous and more expensive. As the Wall Street Journal reported last week, in the border states, not a single House member or senator supports funding for a wall. Is it because of what you've just described for me, or are there other reasons that they are wary? People who live along the border have a very different, very nuanced point of view. I wrote a story not too long ago of a community that said they felt invaded by strangers coming through their area. And they weren't talking about people who were coming into the country illegally. They're talking about federal officials. They're talking about U.S. Border Patrol. The overwhelming amount of people that I've spoken with see it as a real hassle, for instance, to have to go through Border Patrol checkpoints to do their grocery shopping. Most undocumented immigrants don't enter the United States by braving the Rio Grande. How do they get here? Many come by plane. Many come on visas and overstay their visas. I think there's too much of a focus on the southwest border. In misdirecting the public, what are, what are we doing wrong? When we do stories about illegal immigration, the easiest thing to do when it comes to a visual is to get file art that we've had of the border fence. And it's usually like from Nogales or San Diego or whatnot. But <laughs> there's rarely a picture of like a plane, you know? Um, it's an easy way to illustrate the illegal immigration debate. But yes, I mean, it's probably not the right thing to do. We're a lot more cognizant about it than we used to be because illegal immigration is way more (laughs) than just the fence. You know, we've asked you, as I imagine many others have, to cite chapter and verse on the the logistics of wall construction and the uh, obstacles and, and so forth. But, you know, I sense discomfort because you've been covering this story in rather exquisite detail, but you don't believe any of this detail really gets to the heart of the story, do you? No, I think think that people are just so fascinated and so in love with an idea of a barrier that they're kind of losing perspective in regards to the bigger picture. What is the mission here? If the mission is really to cut illegal immigration, to stop people from coming here clandestinely, 
the wall, you know, it might help somewhat, but you have to start thinking holistically. You have to start thinking about what's pushing them and what's pulling them in. The fence is a nice distraction from all that. And I think that's on purpose. (laughs) You know, it's all optics. It's something that you can see. You can see progress, for instance. There was no fence and now there's a fence, you know, and that really satisfies something very basic in our minds. It might be part of the solution, a very tiny part of it. But if you just think of that, you're not thinking of the bigger picture. Cindy, thank you very much. Thank you. Cindy Garkema covers immigration and the border for the LA Times. So what is the mission of the border wall? What does its construction or its very idea really tell us? Early this week, the debate over funding the barrier was so heated that some thought it could cause a government shutdown. Republicans strained to redefine Trump's wall. That, for instance, it wasn't really a wall wall. Congressman Dennis Ross, Republican, said this, the wall is a term to help understand it, to describe it. It could be a fence. It could be an open surveillance to prevent people from crossing. It does not mean an actual wall. Or as Senate Homeland Security Chair Ron Johnson suggested a few weeks back. I've always thought the wall was a metaphor for securing the border. Of course, Trump insists that it is an actual wall. In December, the author Masha Gessen warned us that there would be a point when the discussion over the border wall would become a debate about its particulars. When it does, she said, it's likely that what the wall or talk of the wall will really obstruct is not undocumented immigrants, but an alarming shift in the American psyche. So there isn't much point in focusing on whether the wall is going to be all brick and mortar or partly chicken wire. Whether it's a metaphoric wall or a physical wall doesn't matter. What matters is that we're entering a new level of animosity and hatred toward immigrants in this country. Coming up, tracking hate in America without data. This is on the media. On the media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex, of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. In the Trump era, the economy is still a bit sluggish, but there certainly is a bull market for hatred. 
At a middle school in Michigan, a cafeteria chant of build the wall. At a Minnesota high school, graffiti, go back to Africa, whites only, Trump, and in North Carolina, similar words, black lives don't matter. The election of Donald Trump really has kind of released the kraken of hate in America. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio saying, quote, the horrible, hateful rhetoric that was used in this election by candidate Trump and by a lot of his supporters directly connects to an increase since the election in anti-Semitic incidents, anti-Muslim incidents and anti-LGBT incidents. Muslims, gays, Latinos and other cohorts have seen a sharp spike in hate incidents. And then there's the Jews. An Anti-Defamation League study released this week found that anti-Semitic incidents like swastika, graffiti, and schoolyard bullying have jumped by 86% in the first quarter of 2017. But still, comprehensive data on hate crimes is elusive. A.C. Thompson is a reporter working on ProPublica's Documenting Hate Project, an effort in collaboration with WNYC and other news organizations to keep tabs on intolerance. Welcome to OTM. Thanks for having me on. The FBI is our government's main source of data on crime, including hate crime. But it's well known that on hate crimes, the FBI numbers are woefully incomplete. Why? So this all goes back to 1990, and at that point, Congress passed a law that instructs the U.S. Attorney General to go out and get that information. Since then, the Attorney Generals have directed the FBI, hey, go talk to local, state, police, and sheriff's departments, get the data for us. And the problem has been that 20% of the police departments in the country do not give any data to the FBI. Somewhere around 80% of the departments that actually participate in the program claim they never have hate crimes in their jurisdiction. In Mississippi in 2015, police reported to the FBI that there were zero hate crimes, which, uh, let's just say, didn't correspond with the news coverage or the court docket. Why would police not report this stuff? Who wants to have the headline that says your city or your town or your county is number one for hate crimes in the state or in the country or in the region? That's not a good look. You don't want that. If you just kind of don't do the best job of documenting this stuff and submitting it to the federal government, well, you end up looking better. And actually, you see a similar phenomenon in documenting police shootings. Departments just don't submit the reports. The other thing is that The federal government is asking for information as it defines a hate crime. State law may vary quite significantly from what the federal government considers a hate crime. So now you're asking police departments to collect information that may not even be covered in their state penal code. Five states have no hate crime law whatsoever. Exactly. What I hear from police chiefs and superintendents is they say, we want to go out and solve crimes. We want to respond to emergencies. This is another unfunded mandate, and this is just more paperwork for us. Is there any effort on the federal level to make their jobs easier by, for example, funding the reporting mandate that we're discussing? There's legislation currently pending in the Senate that would basically give grant money to police agencies that want it to upgrade their data collection systems across the board. And the idea is like, hey, this is going to make it easier for you to get 
information that's important on all crimes. And when you get that grant, we'd eventually like you to start submitting the data that you have on hate crimes as well. But so far, there hasn't been a lot of energy on this issue from the Republican Congress. All right. So the FBI uniform crime reporting is not furnishing the data that groups like the Anti-Defamation League and the Justice Department and scholars really need. So how to fill in the gap? We asked people in our network of many, many news organizations to solicit reports from their viewers, their listeners, their readers. We also worked with the Southern Poverty Law Center and other civil rights groups to tap into the data they were collecting. We put it all into a huge database that we share. We talk to the people who claim they've been victimized. We ask for photos. We ask for evidence. It's not comprehensive, but it's one more piece of signal in a world of noise. Well, this sounds great, although it strikes me that if you're successful, what you will have is a vast trove of anecdotal information, difficult for agencies and scholars and civil rights groups to act upon because it's harder to see the larger trends. The thing is, the data set from the FBI just says, here is a crime, the victim, the perpetrator, and this is what we think it was about. It was because the victim was African-American or because the victim was Jewish. With our information, we are actually getting a much more granular narrative understanding of the crimes. One of our partners, Huffington Post, did a story in the wake of the double shooting in Kansas of the computer engineers titled 97 Ways of Saying the Same Hateful Thing. And they had gone into our data set and found story after story of persons being threatened by folks who say, hey, get out of my country. You're an immigrant. You're a Latino. And to me, that was a really insightful thing to learn that what's happening in Kansas, that is not an isolated incident. This is a phenomenon, and this is something worth tracking. Now, there's a counter-narrative, at least from right-wing media, when some hate crimes are found to be hoaxes or something other than the real deal. At least one business is doing great these days, the hate crime hoax factory. The truth we are now learning behind what Michelle Malkin is calling the biggest hate crime hoax of the year. How does that make your job harder? When you get these occasional hoaxes, the notion that we hear from these folks is, hey, look, all these hate crimes are fake. It's all bogus. It's all just people trying to make President Trump look bad. The problem is, is that when we go into the stories that we collect, we just over and over are finding as reporters evidence that seems to tie this political moment to these crimes. When somebody spray paints a bunch of racist epithets, a bunch of anti-Semitic epithets, and the word Trump at a school, the only thing I can infer from that is that the person is down for Trump and they're not really into Jews or people of color. What's your take on how alarmed exactly we should be? Again, because the data is flawed, we don't know how significant the increase is. The early reports on the most recent data looks like we may be looking at a fairly significant uptick, like 24% in 2016 in New York, 50% in Philadelphia, 20% in Chicago in the same time period. 
But again, these are relatively small numbers. And part of what's propelling the increase in reports is the notion that there's a tension on this subject. People have been encouraged by civil rights groups, by the media, people like me, to report them, people who might otherwise have not made these reports. So it's not totally clear how big of an increase we're seeing. All that said, I don't think you should feel that the sky is falling and that we're looking at widespread bloodshed in the streets anytime soon. But I think that we all need to be very, very vigilant that that doesn't happen. AC, thank you very much. Thank you. AC Thompson is a reporter working on the Documenting Hate Project, ProPublica's National Hate Crimes Database. Jew is a funny word because it is, because Jew is the only word that is the, is the polite thing to call a group of people and the slur for the same group. That's Louis C.K. on a word that can be a semantic sand trap. Writing in the New York Times last weekend, Mark Oppenheimer argues that the word has accumulated so many dodgy associations across the centuries that Jews, non-Jews, and politicians avoid it altogether. Speaking at the U.S. Capitol in D.C. at the Holocaust Memorial Museum's Day of Remembrance Ceremony on Tuesday, Trump said, Jewish, 11 times but Jew only twice. We've seen anti-Semitism on university campuses, in the public square, and in threats against Jewish citizens. Mark, as you noted in your piece, past presidents have suffered from this same verbal tick. Yes, you can go back to Ronald Reagan and Obama as well. It's a bipartisan tick, which is that when they issue their Passover or sometimes it's a Passover and Easter proclamation, they send much, much love out to all of the Christians and then they send it to the Jewish people. So the Christians get their noun, but Jews are not Jews. They're Jewish people or Jewish families. So how then did Jew come to be perceived as a sticky wicket, even in ordinary speech? Well, it's not historically the term that Jews themselves have used. It is used. It's used in the Talmud, for example. But Jews historically have talked of themselves until the past couple centuries as Israelites or Hebrews, that sort of thing. And Jews was a word that was often used by other people to describe us. I'll speak of us because Mm -hmm. I'm a Jew. Now, sometimes it was positive and sometimes it was neutral. But beginning in the 17th century, you see it creeping very much into what became modern English as a slur, as somebody who's rejected Christ or somebody who has congeries of of negative attributes. But we can't say Hebrews and Israelites anymore. (laughs) Right. In the United States and in English, Israelite became problematic after 1948 because there actually was a country called Israel. So it became a weird thing to say. And Hebrew very much became the language Hebrew. So talking about people as Hebrews became strange. But of course, the 92nd Street Y in New York City, the great cultural center, is the Young Men's and Women's Hebrew Association. So it's, it was only in the last century that we stopped saying Hebrews. Mm-hmm. But that did leave us with... Uh... A word gap. (laughs) Right. We have a word gap, which is that a couple of the words that we used to all feel comfortable with for a century or two now seem antiquated, so we can't use them. The natural word that describes this group of people we're talking about obviously is going to be something like Jew or Jewish. The problem is that the noun Jew or the three-letter word Jew, for one thing, it's been used as a very, very negative verb in English. So to Jew someone is to try to cheat them. So that's a negative connotation of the word. 
But also, there is this problem that it is used as a slur, that to call someone a real Jew, for example, is negative. Since you've cued it, we have a piece of tape that illustrates this point. You at Grammy Hall would call a real Jew. Thank you. Yeah, well, you know, she hates Jews. She thinks that they just make money. But let me tell you, I mean, she's the one. And is she ever, I'm telling you. <laughs> Annie Hall. We know that if we do this thought experiment, someone in behind us in line at the supermarket uh, refers to someone. Let's make it a sweet, nice lady talking in a sweet voice. But she refers to someone, to the person she's standing next to or the person on her cell phone as a real Jew. We would all sort of tense up and think, what a slur. If that same person talked about someone as a real Christian, we would all think, oh, a real Christian, <laughs> generous and kind. I mean, and this is true for all Americans and I would say Canadians and Brits as well, that a real Jew is a bad thing and a real Christian is a good thing. So when the real version of it is bad and negative, even the word itself to say I'm a Jew or a couple Jews moved in next door seems a little bit sinister even when it's a Jew doing the talking. As a matter of fact, in your op-ed, you cited a conversation you had with an editor following the uh, 2000 election. I was working at the Hartford Current, and I was writing a piece about how, according to the popular vote anyway, but for the Electoral College, the American people just elected a Jew, Senator Lieberman, as vice president. But come on, he was a big Jew. He was a big Jew. Lieberman's a huge Jew. This is this is part of his selling point, and it's partly why evangelical Christians loved him. You know, he wore his piety on his his right and left sleeves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it seemed to me a fairly safe thing to say, especially writing for the newspaper in Hartford, Connecticut, Lieberman's home state that always elected him resoundingly. And, hey, my byline is Oppenheimer. I don't think anyone mistakes me for anything but a Jewish reporter. Mm -hmm. So it seems safe to say. The copy desk went ballistic and said, well, you can't say that we elected a Jew, Senator Lieberman, as vice president. They wanted to say a Jewish vice president, Senator Lieberman, rather than a Jew. The copy editor was a Gentile, was a non-Jew, a super well-meaning guy who just didn't want me or the newspaper to sound anti-Semitic. But I got my, my hackles up. I said, he is a Jew. Why is that a negative thing? I, of course, was being a bit precious. We all know that for a lot of readers, to call someone a Jew does feel negative. And that's for Jewish readers as well as Christian readers. Right, because people don't want to be reduced to a single factor. And if you're secular, whether you're Jewish or Christian or Muslim, you don't want to be identified by your religion. Well, I, first of all, I think that even irreligious Jews are still Jews. If someone says, what are you, right? They notice your last name, not a last name that's been changed somewhere along the way like Gladstone, but a last name like <laughs> – You mean made up last, in steerage? <laughs> yeah, made up in steerage, but a last name like Oppenheimer that's mm -hmm. been Jewy for, you know, hundreds of years now. <laughs> and they say, you know, what are you? And we know what they're asking, right? Mm -hmm. I just think there's something great about being able to say, I'm a Jew. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I don't think it necessarily implies a high level of religious observance. I think you make your decision for yourself. But my point is there's nothing negative about any right. of this. I feel like some part of you is still saying, if I say I'm a Jew, people will make incorrect assumptions about me. I don't know. I would, I would have to dig into my psyche to know if that's true. Really, I was urging writers, especially Jewish writers and Jewish politicians and Jewish entertainers, people who, who have a public persona, to not be afraid of the noun. All over Twitter, 
There are Christian athletes as well as TV stars, as well as animal trainers. In that little bio you get on your homepage, they will often say, you know, I'm a father, I'm a lion tamer, I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. And it's lovely that they feel that sort of ownership over that piece of their identity, not their whole identity. But my assumption is that if they list it among their defining qualities, then they are practicing Christians. First of all, I think that's wrong. I think that's a misunderstanding of the Christian world. They might just be saying it's exceedingly central to who I am. But again, they'll list it as one of five or ten things. It's so characteristic of American Jews who are so worried about anti-Semitism and do have this tendency to want to keep our heads down. We're afraid to list Jew even as among our top five or ten characteristics. And when we do list it, it has to be, well, Jewish, not I'm a Jew. But I think that you're being, frankly, presumptuous. I'm neither fearful of the term nor, you know, desirous of keeping my head down. God knows. I just, (laughs) I don't endorse religiosity of any kind. I don't think the word has anything to do with religiosity. And historically, it doesn't. If you're talking to someone on the show and you want to talk about, you know, something that Larry David has just produced or something that Bernie Sanders has just said, and you say, well, so-and-so, who, of course, is Jewish, if saying he's a Jew would be presumptuous and say too much, what does Jewish say? See, I think it says he's ancestrally Jewish. I think that's all we presume about Bernie Sanders, right? We're not presuming anything about his prayer life or his belief in God or whatever. All I'm saying is that saying that you're a Jew makes the same claim about heritage, but it does it in a way that I feel is a little bit prouder. I was saying there's no reason to avoid, as the presidents have in these proclamations, Jews as a noun. That's a perfect way to end, but I have to (laughs) raise an issue with you that my co-host Bob Garfield raised during our editorial meeting. He says that when a non-Jewish person refers to Jewish people or someone as Jewish rather than as a Jew, he thinks that that's a sign of Jewish discomfort. If they use Jewish. Yeah. I recognize that all of us, Jew and non-Jew alike, have a lot of trouble talking about Jews in English. There is no word that is unloaded. Indeed, one rabbi I know said, we'll know that anti-Semitism has fully ended when nobody pauses for even a microsecond to think about how to talk about Jews. That's really true. I'm not immune. As a writer, I often think, do I say that someone is, comma, a Jew, or do I say, who is Jewish? This is a really tough question. And I don't presume that I have an answer for how well-meaning Gentile writers can handle this. I only think that myself, I can be proud about using the word Jew. Language changes very fast. You know, if we think about how recently it was that queer was an entirely negative term and now it's mostly a positive term used by gay people. If we think about how quickly the euphemism treadmill changes for black people from Negro to colored to black to African-American to of color and now black is actually coming back, the linguists are Mm -hmm. saying. So language is incredibly quickly mutating and I think it would be not so difficult a project for us to say that it's okay for Jews to be Jews. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for having me. Mark Oppenheimer is the host of the Unorthodox podcast and the author of a forthcoming book about what it means to be a Jew. His recent piece in the New York Times Sunday Review is called Reclaiming Jew. 
you know, I was having lunch with some guys from NBC. So I said, uh, did you eat yet or what? And Tom Christie said, no, Jew? Not did you, Jew eat? Jew? No, not did you eat, but Jew eat? Jew, you get it? Jew eat? Uh. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, and Michael Lowinger. We had more help from Sara Kari, Leia Feder, and Kate Bakhtiarova, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Terrence Bernardo and Sam Baer. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. And the show is dedicated to the memory of Kathy Brenneman. We love you, Jesse. Support for On the Media comes from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Overbrook Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.